0: Hello and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host Dr Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife and I'm joined weekly by my co-host B from Core and Flora Store and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Okay we're here next episode here of the Great <laughs> Birth Rebellion
1: we made That's literally we've just debriefed with each other for 45 minutes and then we're like should we record a podcast yeah we should record yeah, the podcast
0: do that. oh my gosh so today we're talking about shoulder dystocia which is a beautiful follow-on from our small babies big babies episodes which have caused quite a stir
1: and the other thing I really want to say straight up is if your baby has been born via shoulder dystocia or and you're listening to this because you've had a previous one or you are a maternity care provider that has provided care for somebody with a shoulder associate mel and i don't take this topic lightheartedly at all it is a serious complication and um, we just want to send a lot of love to anyone that's ever been involved in it both of us have um and it's huge it's huge for everyone involved really big for the baby lots of love to those babies born that way lots of love to the person who is giving birth to those babies and the care providers, it's it's a huge event, um, and we just want to send love to you first uh, because, especially if you're coming here with trauma, either workforce for trauma or birthing trauma, um, it can feel like a lot. But we're going to really go through it strategically today to give you the information that you need to help you make a better decision.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, let's kick it off then with you know, let's have a chat about what shoulder dystocia is. Mm. Because I feel like a lot of textbooks give it this really easy, clean definition and that clinicians, you know, look at the textbook and go, oh, okay, that's what shoulder dystocia is. You know, if you look at a textbook, they'll talk to you about how the shoulder at the front of the woman. So if, you, if you're if you listening to this right now and you put your hand on your pubic, where your pubic hair should be, um, this is where, this is called the anterior shoulder of your baby when that's inside
1: you. And so feel for your pubic bone first, right? Let's get that. So go if you feel for your pubic bone, that's the hard bit. It's on what's called the mons pubis, but it's the hard bit. It's the front of the pelvis. So when you see, if you imagine a pelvis in your head, um, it's that front bone and then the anterior shoulder. So anterior just means front. So it means the front of the person's body. So when we're talking about the baby's position, we're using the pregnant person's right. positions. Yeah, so anterior means front. So we're talking about the front of the person that's pregnant. So that's where the shoulder would be. Yes. And I love that you talked about textbooks living, giving clean examples because I feel like we could put that across the whole of maternity, right? Like that's this is what labour should look like. This is what these, like it, textbooks fail to take into consideration the uniqueness of every human. And I want to give a shout out to a book here just and I'm getting a it's actually I'm not getting sidetracked because it's exactly what happens in the pelvic bowl. There is an incredible book called Vagina by Naomi Wolf. And if you haven't read it, have you read it, Mel? No. No. You need to do it this weekend. It needs to happen. We should do a whole episode on it. Um, it is a mind-blowing book that every person needs to read, especially a person who owns a vagina. But basically the start of the book, what it explains is how with in people with penises, their neurological systems so their nerves throughout the penis are pretty much stock standard between each penis, right? Every person that has a vagina and a vulva, their neurological wiring is unique. And this blows my mind in terms of birth, right? But she writes about it in terms of orgasm because neurologically, some people are wired to have clitoral orgasms, some people are wired to have anal orgasms, perineal, cervical, we're all wired differently. We tend to, in our culture, think orgasms are like this. I love that I've started talking about orgasms and shoulder (laughs) so but we tend to think it's this cultural thing. And if you can't orgasm, there's something wrong with you. It's not, it's how we're wired, right? And so every pelvis is wired really differently. And I think that has a huge role to play in birth and that impacts it. So there is no clean definition of anything in birth And what we're going to explain today is that there's no clean definition in shoulder associate. I brought it back. I'm so proud of myself. I moved (laughs) from shoulder associate to orgasm back. I'm going to mute now and Mel's going to explain shoulder associate in the non-clean textbook version. Correct.
0: Because the clean textbook version, it does everyone a disservice. So new midwives just always assume, oh, well, that's. If it's a shoulder dystocia, then that's because the anterior shoulder, the shoulder that would be sitting at your pubic bone, that's the one that's stuck. So that's one option. The other option is it could be the posterior shoulder, so the one that's at your bum or at your, ta- at your tailbone. Um, It could be stuck in a completely other angle in the pelvis. It could be stuck in the upper part of the pelvis, the lower part. It could be at spines in your pelvis. There's so many bony possibilities in your pelvis that your baby could get stuck in and it might not be straight across, one shoulder might be more impacted than the other, both might be impacted. We don't really know where the baby's impacted at the point when the the heads come out. So if we could stop assuming that it's the anterior shoulder or even the posterior shoulder in that direction in the front to back direction then you're already Meeting the
1: anterior shoulder directly stacked on the pivot bone because it could be a little bit to the left and to the right and this is so important in management is that you treat this as an individual case and you actually t- pause value the pause breathe and then go for it
0: yeah and so what um so, so what i'm trying to get at i guess is that there's no all, a lot of the research says that diagnosis of shoulder stotia is actually subjective. There's no objective measure or strategy where everyone in the room looks at each other and goes, yes, this is a shoulder dystocia because it ticks all these boxes. It's actually the clinician, the person looking at the baby is the one that needs to put together a whole lot of complex information in their mind about if this baby's experiencing a shoulder dystocia or not. So sounds really interesting because a lot of people say it wasn't a shoulder dystocia, it was tight shoulders. And I think it's all right to sort of go, oh, I think it's a shoulder dystocia. But then once you manage it, manage it and once the baby's out and looking at the whole picture going, no, actually now that I'm at this end, I don't think it was a shoulder dystocia. So it's okay to kind of go, oh, I think this <laughs> is a shoulder dystocia and then act and do something because you think it's a shoulder dystocia. And then partway through realise maybe it wasn't and that's okay for me to classify it as not.
1: Yeah, but if you're in a big system and you've caught a shoulder dystocia and they get the shoulder dystocia paperwork out, it's now a shoulder dystocia. It's defined as one, right? Like, cause then this is the issue. You are so used to working so holistically in that beautiful continuity model that you can treat every person as a unique human. In fragmented care, where people are caring for people that they don't know and they're working with people they don't know. This is why these systems and these mnemonics that surround these kind of emergencies are in place because that uniqueness is taken out and now the system needs a system. Right, that's right. Right, the system needs a system. It wants its checkboxes. And if you have started your short social paperwork, no one goes, oh, that wasn't one, let's rip that up. That's in the person's chart now. Yeah. It's a shoulder dystocia and it gets recorded as one. And this that's the bigger system issue. Yeah. The system wants to train people in specific ways so that when we all turn up, we're like Lego pieces, right? It's like the beautiful Lego movie. That's, you know, if you want a good analogy of the maternity care system, it's the Lego movie. Everyone working the way they have to. Yeah. Everything is awesome. I just want to say I acknowledge. I acknowledge and I see why we do things the way we do. It doesn't mean they're correct and it doesn't mean we have to keep going this way. So shoulder and associate, the true definition of it is that it's a bony impaction. Is that the right word? It's A bone has been impacted on another bone. And I want to say this hurts. When I do internal release work, right, and I touch a person's bone, they're like, ooh, like internally i touch their bone you feel the difference bone feels very different to be touched than muscle does and a bone on another bone typically hurts and anyone i've cared for that's had shoulder dystocia where it has been on that anterior shoulder on the pubic bone they feel it and they may not say it in the moment that they say it afterwards they'll be like there's just this pain here because it hurts so you've got a bone stuck on bone somewhere in the pelvis is that your definition Your unique, yeah, basically, is that so? Basically,
0: the baby's stuck because, like, in a bony way, not in a fleshy way, right? And so, it's almost like trying to bring a a square peg through a round hole, but part of the peg's already out. So the (laughs) head, the head of the peg's already out, and then the square of the peg is stuck in a round hole, and the so it is
1: impaction. No, I want to change that analogy because I have a two-year-old at the moment that has one of those. um, you know, toys where you put the toys in the hole, you've got a square peg and you've got a square hole but it just hasn't fitted right yet. Right. Right, because it does fit. You've got to spin it, right? So he's going, he goes, oh, tricky, tricky, help me. That's pretty much what a baby's saying in Shoulder Dissociate. Tricky, tricky, help me. I do fit. I can fit. I just need a bit of help for you to for me to fit. I need you to help me for me to fit because it will fit. We've just got to spin it. I'm
0: doing big. That's the best analogy I've ever come up with. Don't edit that bit out.
1: That's phenomenal.
0: I won't edit that out because it's way better than the pair, the square peg and circle hole. It's a circle. It's imagine like an oval, right? So you've got an oval (laughs) pelvis and an oval. What shape do we want to go with? The ovals just haven't matched up. So you've got to rotate the ovals so they get, they go through, right? So if you imagine a baby coming through the pelvis, and this is a very rudimentary, like crude definition, but imagine it corkscrewing through the pelvis. And so the shoulders maneuver through in a corkscrew kind of wave through the pelvis And a dystocia is where that corkscrew and wave through the pelvis uh, doesn't quite work because the baby gets impacted and their bone gets stuck on something. So they can't rotate through. And so the way we normally recognize a shoulder dystocia is you can only recognize it once the baby's head is out. So this is probably one of the more time pressured situations in a birth. Where the baby's
1: head is out. Yeah, it's one of the, it's a it is an obstetric emergency. And it of all obstetric emergencies. I don't want to call it an obstetric emergency. Okay. What do you want to call it?
0: It's a midwifery situation that requires a midwife to to do something. So where, you know, and I always think about how I acted at birth. When everything's going perfectly well, there's not a whole lot for me to do other than take basic OBS and reassure the woman that everything's normal. Where there's something like a shoulder dystocia, you go, oh, now it's time for me to use mm-hmm. all the midwifery skill that I have to resolve this mm-hmm. complication. So I think it's mm-hmm. a complication. I think it only becomes an emergency when we can't resolve it.
1: That's actually a beautiful definition and really shows how. The definitions we use within the system change our practice, change our scope of practice and our skill levels um, and who can do what and and how it unfolds because we do. Even just using the word obstetric emergency, it changes the whole tone. And the last thing you want in a situation like that is fear from anyone. Yeah. I love that, Mel. I think we Thanks. should redefine that.
0: Well, see, and so you're onto a winner with the, the square pegs. Oh, we oh. just...
1: So let's just take, we just going on to a world tour now. Yes.
0: And I did it's think, happen, you know, so I think if we call it an obstetric emergency, everyone freaks out and think, holy shit, what, what's going to happen now? But I think if we consider it as a just, a, it's a birth complication that needs midwifery attention and we can resolve it and everyone can be fine. And there's not been an emergency. There's just been a reason to act.
1: So, um, yeah. so Rather than observe, which is true midwifery, but we do have the skills to act as well. Yeah, and we go, oh, that's
0: not normal. Looks like a shoulder dystocia. We can do that. And so I think part of the issue too is that we, in a hospital setting, it's too easy to just pass on this kind of complexity to the obstetric team and then midwives think that they can't do it. But um, we're here to tell you that (laughs) managing a shoulder dystocia is probably not as complex as you think it is because
1: it's been complicated, but we're here to simplify it a little bit. If we can change the language and the vibe around it, it actually feels safer to manage and you realize you have you, you know, you feel more confident in it. But I just want to acknowledge if you have felt scared or it hasn't felt good and it has been, it feels more like an emergency for you, just acknowledging that because that is really what we're taught and trained in. We're taught to be scared of it rather than to embrace it and go, no, we can do this, we're good at it. We're taught to be scared of it. And we're taught to press that red buzzer and let everyone come into the room. And, you know, I had some colleagues that were highly, highly skilled colleagues that managed this kind of stuff beautifully, and they got into a lot of trouble a lot of trouble for not pressing red buzzers in the past Um, and the system punishes them for that because they didn't call in help even though they managed it beautifully and so this is a big part of it we create we create the trauma and the drama and
0: I think you know when you remember things you remember the emotion of it so if there's a shoulder dystocia happening and the button gets pushed and everyone rushes in and there's hands everywhere and people are doing everything and it's a really heightened situation, next time you come to a shoulder dystocia, your body responds to how you felt last time. And so all of a sudden the adrenaline kicks in straight away and the pace picks up and there's this urgency. Whereas um, I guess as a home birth midwife myself, there's only two health professionals in that space myself and the other second midwife. And so there's no way we could whip things into a panic because there's the two of us. There's mutual respect from the woman towards us and us towards her. And so, you know, if things happen and you say, hey, uh, you know, we're going to help you get your baby out because we think it's stuck and we need you to do A, B and C to help with this. And we're all working together. There's no place for for yelling at people and for noise and chaos and banging and all this activity. And so even though it's a complication, it's it doesn't feel like an emergency and you actually have mm-hmm. a calm space to manage it. Yeah. So if we talk about what shoulder social is, firstly, we can't, Really, truly, all tick a box to say yes. This is definitely a shoulder dystocia. Really, until afterwards, where we just, you know, we realize what happened in order to get the baby out. So, yeah, B, you mentioned, you know, the tight shoulders label, and that's probably midwives thinking, "Oh, is this a shoulder dystocia?" But then after doing a very small amount of um of effort and then the baby comes, do they go, oh, well, maybe it wasn't shoulder dystocia because I only had to give a tiny bit of effort to get the baby out. Maybe it was just tight shoulders. So, you know, I think it's okay that there's this greyness about was that a shoulder dystocia or wasn't it because, you know, it does help aid your, what you do next. You if, if the shoulders are truly stuck, it will become very obvious and then you know you need to act more aggressive.
1: Oh, you're talking about greyness in the moment grayness in the moment yeah because grayness afterwards probably isn't because if it's on a person's file then it's on a person's file and then the issue here is the how the next pregnancy is managed um because once you have it's like a red cross on a file right once you've got that you've been a previous high-risk birth and then the way the next pregnancy and subsequent pregnancies are managed is with the knowledge that that's happened to you before.
0: We go through kind of steps of trying to diagnose if it's a shoulder dystocia, because, you know, if you think, oh, is that a shoulder dystocia? And then you put a little little bit of effort to sort of put your hands on the baby and then you can see the shoulder coming. Then you go, oh no, okay, it mustn't be shoulder dystocia because I can see the shoulder coming. I didn't put much effort into bringing it out. So not a shoulder dystocia. Or if you think, is that a shoulder dystocia? And you reach up into the woman to check for the baby's position, and you can feel two shoulders. You're like, Well, okay, no, I suspected shoulder dystocia, but then I went through a process of assessment and realized it wasn't shoulder dystocia. So it's okay that there is some time to diagnose this uh, because it's subjective. That's what the research says. We can't really ever pinpoint it. Some talk about the interval between the time interval between the birth of the head and the shoulders. And some of the research talks about this really tiny window of 60 seconds between the birth of the head um, to the emergence of the shoulder. And if there's a longer interval than 60 seconds, then you might start to suspect shoulder dystocia. And I'm not sure what the practice is in hospitals anymore, but at home and from my what I've learned from my colleagues, we if the head comes in one contraction, it's considered completely appropriate to wait for the next contraction which could be 5 or 6 minutes away um before the rest of the baby's born and so long as i don't
1: think in a hospital setting i can't talk for every hospital setting but um it depends on who's in the room okay. but 5 or 6 minutes not in a hospital setting. in and if it would depend it would very much depend on the clinic the the people that are in the room clinically and how it was being managed and the history of it but it'd be interesting to see people probably write in now and let us know if there's policies be interesting to know i mean you and i have seen the five minutes because there's been five minute lead contractions you can look at the baby you can tell um you know how well that baby is with its head sitting there on the perineum but um in clinical situations in a hospital situation, sorry, I have definitely done that, but it's been me and another midwife that we trust each other and we've worked together being in that room and supporting that. Oh. But if there were other people in the room, that wouldn't unfold that way typically. Well, and not I five think, minutes, no way, not. I think that's the
0: difference. But then I know like if I'm looking at this baby and it's grimacing and it's mm. moving its lips around, <laughs> it's trying to have a cry and it's lips and <laughs> Not turning purple you go well this baby's well like we can wait yeah. it would be different though if the baby's head was born and mm. you saw signs of sh- shoulder dystocia it would be poor clinical practice to go oh well let's just wait for the next contraction to yeah. see if the baby comes down no yeah. you, you know so there's yeah. some reasoning that goes on but this has been written about actually it's called the two-step method for, to, to have a baby born um mm. So I didn't realize that it had a name until I started looking Ooh. into this, this interval, time interval between the head being born and the shoulders being born. So this is um, a 2022 research paper that's advocating for the adoption of a two-step method for the birth of the baby. And that means the baby's head is born in one contraction and then it's okay to wait for the next contraction for the rest of the baby. And there's some suspicion that actually this would reduce the rates of shoulder dystocia, because when you do a one-step method where you think the baby should be completely expelled um, during one contraction or within 60 seconds of the head being born, then we start to do manoeuvres and try and get babies out and we don't allow them to take the steps they were going to take to get themselves out the next contraction right
1: and this is why people that do instrumental birth see shoulder dissociator a lot because unless they pause and often many do but if they try and get that baby out in one clean sweep as they you know they and especially if they've been trying with the instruments for a while they may there may be that feeling that they have to expediate the birth. And so they try and birth the baby all in one. And that's why we often explain. That's why um, instrumental births have an increase in shoulder dissociate because the baby hasn't yet had a chance to turn its shoulders in a, in normal mechanisms of labor. When a, a ba- and most babies are typically born in what we call OA position. So O standing for occiput, A standing for anterior. So the occiput is the back of your head where it um, to starts to kind of groove. Um, and a groove and move, um, and so what that looks like is the baby's face is facing the person's bum, right? And so you only ever see one face at a time. You're either seeing the mother's face or the person's face or the baby's face at the birth. So the head comes out, and then what it needs to do is it has to turn so that its shoulders can then move down into the pelvis and come out that way. And so because the shoulders typically can't be born. Uh, horizontally across the body. Am I getting the my dimensions right now? Yeah, they have to turn so they're vertical, right, so that they're parallel with the pubic bone and the coccyx, the the baby's shoulders. So one shoulder has to be where the pubic bone is and one has to be the coccyx inside. Think that way, right? So baby's head comes facing down and the baby's head turns to the side so that the shoulders naturally rotate. But if you try and birth a baby, if you do it, because I want to say – My body failed the two-step approach, so we did that. We decided to do that. Where the issue lies is where the care provider decides that that's the right approach, and they pull the baby out as opposed to the body pushing the baby out and the baby moving through with those pushes to manoeuvre itself in the pelvis. That's where bone-on-bone typically Happens. Exactly.
0: And so what yeah, like you said, sometimes, you know, it happens that the whole baby's born at once, but that's because it's managed to do the full corkscrew rotation and and navigation of the pelvis in that one contraction. But what this and what we should be moving towards is baby's head is 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 being comfortable with the baby's head being born and realizing that the gap between the next that contraction and the next one where the shoulders are going to be born is when the baby does its actual shoulder maneuver through Ooh. the pelvis. And you see it, it's called restitution. You see the baby's head be born. And then during the gap, um, the baby is actually actively involved in getting itself into a position where it can be born. So women do report feeling their baby kick up inside them, like kicking themselves Ooh. down they wriggle their shoulders, they can turn their head, they can grimace and do all these things and um, wriggle. And then as you're waiting for the contraction, you see the baby turn and face the inside of the mother's thigh. And so as a clinician, you go, okay, that means the baby's restituted. That means the shoulders are in position. I've got a re- I'm have got really confident that in the next contraction, those shoulders are going to be born because I just watched the baby get itself into position. So there's a thought that with this idea that the baby should all come out in the one contraction and if it doesn't, you start to suspect shoulder dystocias, are we then creating shoulder dystocia because mm. we're trying to pull the baby down into the pelvis and it hasn't actually rotated into position where it can get down? So we've actually am- impacted the baby's shoulders. Although the interval between when the baby and the shoulders were born was increased, it was almost doubled if you do this two-step approach, uh, that you can reduce the, the rates of shoulder dystocia by actually letting the shoulders manoeuvre themselves through the pelvis instead of expecting this really limited time frame for when
1: it, the baby's allowed to do that. So anytime that I have provided care for a person where the baby has been suspected big, there is more intervention there is more management even if it's a spontaneous labor people are knocking people are wanting to be there people are thinking it's going to happen and it feels like i've been in situations where like we created that we totally created that situation and so if you're doing these studies and you're already the whole study is about big babies then everyone's got this fear of this shoulder dystocia, which is why we're doing this in the first place, right? Like this is why the big baby's topic has come up because shoulder dystocia is seen as an obstetric emergency with a lot of fear. Not, not everyone has the male approach. If we all had the male approach to shoulder dystocia, the big baby's situation probably wouldn't exist. And so... What I think often happens is we aren't taking that unique approach. We're not looking at the whole labor situation and going, yeah, this person's contractions have been two or three minutes. We're already assuming that those baby shoulders are going to get stuck. And we, even if we're not even consciously doing it, right? Hands are poised, hands are on. Maybe we're pulling, maybe we're giving traction, maybe we're trying to get that baby born straight away. And what I'm hearing is that people are automatically setting up for shoulder dystocia, so people are birthing in what we call mcroberts position so their knees are being pushed up especially if they've had epidural that that's happening because it's just already anticipated mm. so if you and i know the whole picture we know that the contractions have been five minutely we've then seen that the baby's come out and it's you know gurgling and wanting to talk to us and it's grimacing and it's it's alive and it's well and then we see it rotate then that five minutes is going to feel fine it's not going to feel panicky but totally different story when that baby comes out and it's purple and it doesn't want to move and there is no restitution you know and that's that's the midwifery skills that we're meant to have
0: that's true midwifery and that's what you get from watching babies come out over and over and over again on their own. You go, oh, that's what's normal. So what we don't know when you try and get a baby out in a one single contraction is you don't know what would have happened in the next contraction, and so we're frightened of it. And so this I guess what's
1: missing from modern maternity care is these poor new grads, these poor students coming up, and, you know, scene a physiological birth is an extremely rare event for them. Um, And so they're not getting, they're not coming out with these skills and then they're not building them. Mm. Yeah. Not saying everyone, but in big systems, they don't get to watch babies just come out.
0: What you were saying before about how women can feel when there's impacted bone on bone, uh, all the times I've experienced and had to work with a shoulder dystocia situation, the woman has been able to preempt They've even they've all they've said oh it's so sore like this is really like an ex- extra amount of pain than normal and they'll say things like it doesn't feel right or it feels like the baby's not coming down and so the woman's got all this internal information about what's going on for her baby as well so that immediately for me I go well I trust you I trust that you have an intuitive knowledge and so. I'm going to see what's happening too. And so, if you compare the woman's knowledge with your own knowledge, then you've got heaps more information to work with. So, if she's had a really long pushing phase and it's been really sore and she's feeling like it's stuck. And then, so immediately I'm starting to think is there there a malpositioning of the baby? And are we looking at, is there a nuchal arm in the way? Are the shoulders impacting? You know, is the baby coming down posterior or asynclitic or something? So we're kind of gradually putting the picture together. If a woman's capable of working out that something doesn't feel right, they are also physiologically inclined to move in a way that feels like it actually might resolve it. So if she's feeling like, ah, this feels stuck, she's naturally going to move her legs and pelvis in a way to try and relieve that sensation because she can feel internally that something's weird. And so it's entirely possible that when the baby's head is born, if it still feels weird for the woman, that she might do something fancy with one leg. She might lift up her knee. She might instinctually change position and actually create a change in her pelvis that changes the way the baby moves into the pelvis and therefore will be born in the next contraction we're all unaware that, that there could have been a potential shoulder dystocia. But well, there the, was one and it's been resolved. And it's been resolved, but not with, mid, with midwifery skill, but it's been resolved with the skill of the of the mother. And so it's okay to let the baby's head be born and then wait for the next contraction for the shoulders because that's how physiological birth works. Sometimes maybe comes out in one go, but yeah. It, yeah. And then, so it's okay if you see a woman doing some fancy footwork and, you know, it's okay to just let them do that. You know, some people sort of, I've seen midwives go, oh, no, 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 we're not going to, we're going to stay nice and still or no, you can't do that. Or, you know, just let them move. Let them work it out. It's movement. The baby's got to move through the pelvis. The woman has to move in labour. It's dynamic. It can't be this static situation because things will get stuck. Uh, so, most
1: people birth statically. Correct. Yes, and most hospital births are static because they're on a bed. And if they've got an epidural even more so. Right. But, yeah, most they're told to get on a bed. Let's yeah. talk about what causes... What mm. cool! Ah, beautiful tie in there all right so let's so
0: we talk about where how does this happen how do shoulders get stuck in the bony pelvis so we already and we're not going to go back over the stats from from the big ba- small babies big babies episode but statistically speaking a bigger baby over four or 4.5 bees rolling rice four kilos um statistically has a a more of a chance of shoulder dystocia. It's just the stats, not saying all the nuances about it, but if we're going to sort of try and create a risk profile. Um, If you've had a previous incidence of shoulder dystocia, you do have a higher incidence in your following births. But this is also possibly related to the fact that typically each baby you have, they slightly get bigger each time. And so we actually see shoulder dystocia more op- often in women who've had multiple babies rather than they're in their first baby. So that's another risk factor is if you've had multiple babies. Unfortunately, your risk of shoulder dystocia seems to go up. So but I mean it's largely unpredictable. These are just some some sort of things that might put up a, a bit of a red flag. So the the shape of a woman's pelvis, and this can be either an internal thing. So if um in developing countries there's more issues with things like, for example, girls who get married off in arranged marriages too young before their pelvis is actually mature and in a of a size that
1: can pass a baby through. What's and-, mal- and malnutrition. So malnutrition meaning that their pelvis It never gets a chance to actually grow properly or to full capacity because there hasn't been a nourishment for the body to do that.
0: Correct. So there's some sort of more third world issues that can create a problem with the woman's pelvis shape. But also things like if the woman's had um, quite a big injury, car accidents, falling off horses and things that has impacted on their pelvis and maybe changed the shape of it. Things like, not that it happens much anymore, but rickets and all that kind of stuff can change the shape of a woman's pelvis.
1: And a lot of things change what's happening in that pelvic space too. I just want to highlight that. because, And we kind of went through midwifery with the anatomy knowledge that there was like four different shapes of the pelvis. Like internally you could have four different shapes. And I went to this incredible presentation years ago where they looked at um, dead humans and actually there's not four. (laughs) there's a lot Um, and that every pelvis is uniquely different. So, you know, just like externally we look very different and just like our vulvas are all different, our internal structures look very different too. And this is, again, that whole textbook where we have shown this is what everyone's heart looks like and this is what everyone's kidneys look like. Well, it doesn't. Our life experiences, our genetics, everything shapes what we look like internally internally to be unique just as like externally we are unique it's not just bone in the pelvic space it's connective tissue there is muscle and nerves and so again this is where like pelvic floor tension if there's there or what I think of more than anything is scar tissue and we're seeing more and more people now coming into their first birth with a lot of story in that pelvis, whether it be um, losses of babes, either through choice or um, spontaneous losses that were out of their control, and then things for, like, infertility, so investigations, pap smears. You know, we put a lot of things in that space too, like menstrual cups and tampons. It all affects how that space ends up looking and reacting and working in birth.
0: Yeah, and if you've, you know, and even if you so if you if we put aside the potential of like a pathological reason for why your pelvis is a particular shape, mm. your during pregnancy you actually get this hormone called relaxin. And regardless of the internal shape of your pelvic outlet, your body gives you this relaxin to actually mobilize the bones in your pelvic structure so that when your baby's trying to come through your pelvis is actually a lot more malleable and the ligaments and tendons and muscles that hold it in place actually give it a lot more room so it's flexible and movable.
1: So really remembering there's five joints in the pelvis. It's it's not a fixed structure. It is something that opens and moves beautifully and then we get added chemicals to aid that process even more.
0: Yeah. And so, um, yeah, well, that's all the stuff. but. There's external things that can impact on your pelvis. So things like an epidural, which see you lying on your back, that changes the movability and the malleability of your pelvis. So it's still about your pelvic shape of what's going to happen to your baby, but it's an external factor that's been applied that's going to impact upon how your pelvis is going to act in labour And so if you're inactive and you're lying on the bed or you've been deemed inactive by use of an epidural, then you can't expect your pelvis to move in the same way as somebody who's off the bed or in water or who's been moving or standing in the shower or sitting on the toilet or using a birth stool. Those, The pelvis of a woman that's lying flat on her back to give birth, either through epidural or the use of stirrups, if that's how the baby's coming out, even if there's no pain relief, The two pelvises can't be compared about how the baby's going to come through. We we have to expect that when you apply an unnatural, unphysiological position like lying on your back in labour, you need to expect that that birth is not going to unfold physiologically. Whereas if there's physiological birth positioning where the woman's been able to choose and do whatever feels most comfortable for her, then you've got the most chance of, of having an appropriate pelvic space for the baby to come down and appro- appropriate movement of the woman's pelvis to allow the baby down. So risk factor for shoulder dystocia most definitely
1: is if you're lying on the bed. I teach child dissociation. I teach emergency uh, courses, sorry, language there, um, mm. through an organisation. It's like a volunteer role I have. And we have this incredible mannequin. And you can see the difference of when they're on their back and when you're doing manoeuvres. And then when you rotate them onto all fours, you just have to think about it here, right? Like laying down, you're squashing the space. There is literally less room. And then you've got All that weight and gravity. So you've closed off a space that you required to be more open Mm. in birth in general, but in shoulder dissociative management, right? And so one of the maneuvers we do is I'm just going to say we call it the all fours maneuver because I don't like that it's named after somebody because it's not just flipping somebody over, but turning them over. um, And what that does is it opens up the pelvis more. It also probably allows her to move and shift and, and get a position that's more comfortable for her.
0: Yeah. So if we reduce the the pelvic shape by putting pressure on your on your tailbone and your coccyx, that's going to change how your baby moves through. So we already spoke about bigger babies as being a possibility, but longer gestations, which I think just correlates to the fact that the baby gets bigger. So, it, you know, more likely if you're a 41, 42 week pregnancy than if you're a 38, 39 week pregnancy. Also, the use if your babies had to be born via forceps or vacuum. Again, it's like that forcing the baby through the
1: pelvis. Oh, we talked fast. about that before.
0: Yeah, so that yeah. Can the
1: induction is the one I don't think we've mentioned yet.
0: Oh, we haven't mentioned. Okay, yes. So if you have an induction, get that in there. Get that in there. being like ah, it's in there. So induction of labour uh, statistically higher chance of shoulder dystocia, and what that's thought to be related to, well, partly. Uh, the the contractions that you get for an induction are significantly different in sensation to the ones that your body would give you in normal. And so it's not surprising that more women who have an induction choose to also have an epidural. So that could be part of it. But the contractions that you get with an induction, you know, are subjectively stronger than what your body would be giving you. And so there's this idea that actually babies are being kind of forcibly... Plugged into the pelvis and too forcibly in a way, and they're getting impacted because of the level of force. So it's multifactorial, but certainly if you are having an induction and you're also immobile, you can see why that would increase the risk of shoulder dystocia because it also increases the risk of needing forceps or vacuum because that whole physiological process is interrupted. Those are a few reasons there, we're going to call them just risk factors, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. It just means that, you know, as you start to put the picture together is do we have compounding risks that might put this woman in a category where she's, she may have a higher chance of having a shoulder dystocia. Even if she does, we really can't do anything different except manipulate the external factors. So if you are a woman, you're thinking, oh gosh, there's a few things on that list that, that I fit a few things you can do is is during your pregnancy, try and assure that you've got good pelvic alignment, so things like chiropractic or osteopathic adjustments where you've ensured that you don't have any twists or turns or weird things going on in your pelvis. But then also make efforts to stay active in
1: labour. Uh, and active in pregnancy, I want to say that too. I know it's hard, but exercise in pregnancy is, you know, there is so much evidence around that around a better birth better postpartum but yeah for, for birth you want healthy muscles
0: yeah and just seeing if you can knock off a few of those risk factors off the list so if you can if you can avoid an induction if you can avoid an epidural if you can keep moving uh you know all these things might help you reduce the chance of the shoulder dystocia if you already feel like you fit into some kind of risk category so there's been some thought in the in the research of like, oh, okay, so how do we prevent shoulder dystocia? A- at the extreme end, they're offering women with bigger babies, uh cesarean sections, or inductions to prevent their babies from getting any bigger. So these are two non-evidence-based strategies for preventing shoulder dystocia. The evidence tells us that we have no tried and true and evidence-based strategy for there's no prediction tool for who is more likely to have a shoulder dystocia and who's not and therefore we can't make clinical clinical decisions based on the possibility that a woman will have a shoulder dystocia so you just say that louder for the people in the back back there's no way to predict shoulder dystocia so we can't make clinical decisions based on flawed predictions However,
1: there might be. And so induction and cesarean are not evidence-based care. If you want that, fine. If you want it, it's your choice. This is always your choice. But if it's somebody else's choice and it becomes your choice out of fear or coercion, please know it's not evidence-based.
0: Right. And, you know, and I'm thinking of women now who maybe have experienced a shoulder dystocia and they might think to themselves, don't want to do that again, I would be much, much happier with an elective cesarean section. That's amazing. These are not the the decisions that I'm refuting. I'm refuting decisions that are pushed upon women and women think, I don't know if I really want to do that. And I don't really have the fear that my clinician does about, like you said, being coerced into a cesarean or an induction if you've had a previous experience with shoulder dystocia if you've had multiple and therefore you're feeling like you want to have a cesarean section and i think that is an empowered a choice that you've empower, been empowered to make and that you should go ahead and do that if you feel like that's what you need to do to avoid another shoulder dystocia so i'm on board with anything a woman herself chooses what i'm not Most on board people with,
1: sorry go for it
0: yeah what I'm not on board with is if women feel coerced into something because it's clinicians are supposed to give evidence-based recommendations and if they're recommending cesarean sections or or inductions in order to prevent shoulder dystocias then they're not working in an evidence-based way
1: and this is what's happening and this is all it's becoming almost routine normalized care and it's it's not okay right Exactly. We're not improving outcomes. So why we're doing it. And you and I would argue that more than anything, we're having worse outcomes, especially in terms of obstetric violence and birth trauma. And this is what it has to come, yeah. come back to.
0: Yeah. And so the, you know, that already the preventative strategies could be good pelvic alignment, obviously controlling and avoiding gestational diabetes, uh, keeping active in labor, all these things. But yes. We can't prevent. We can't use epidur- uh, inductions and cesarean sections as a strategy to prevent shoulder dystocia. Um,
1: and if you do all those things and it still happens to you, big luck. You haven't done anything wrong. You haven't missed anything. It's just happened for some reason. It was. It, it happened, and we work through that, and you can heal. So I just want to say that too. Birth debriefing is so important for everyone, but um, especially when you've had a complication and there's trauma there to debrief it as well
0: and I know this is what all the midwives have come to hear probably, is how do we resolve a shoulder dystocia? Where, How do we, after we've identified one, how do we resolve it? So we already spoke about the the very real possibility that if we just wait for the next contraction, it's quite possible the baby will sort itself out and the woman will create some movement to resolve a potential shoulder dystocia herself. So if I can encourage you to get comfortable with waiting for the next contraction, you know, obviously there's some nuance around that because a skilled clinician could also look at a baby after the head comes out and immediately identify shoulder dystocia. And if that's the case, if you if your general practice and my general practice is to wait for the next, next contraction, unless I suspect shoulder dystocia. So there's been times in my career over the 14 years that I've been doing home birth where I always just wait for the baby to come out that I've not waited for the baby to come out after that first contraction because something in my midwifery sense is telling me that it's time to act. And it's okay to act in those situations. So the first thing we need to get comfortable with is what normal physiological birth looks like so that we know when to act when it isn't progressing physiologically. And you can look at a baby's face when it comes out and go, I think you might be stuck, little one, and be able to act before the next contraction. And so, How do we resolve it? Let's just assume, yeah, we have confirmed that there's definitely a shoulder dystocia. And one thing that it can be is that little midwives know the little turtle sign where it literally looks like the baby's head is trying to retract back into the vagina because the shoulders are stuck up so high and the baby's head has been born and you're imagining its neck is quite extended and stretched out. And so it's trying to reunite its head with its shoulders we call it the turtle sign um, where, you know, the chin looks like it's trying to get back into its mother. So that's one sign that the shoulders haven't restituted. And it could it might not be the thing that's going to make you act though. So again, you're also having a look at the condition of the baby. And so at, a turtle sign could resolve itself in the next contraction when the when the shoulders rotate. But okay, getting back to it. You've got what you suspect is a shoulder dystocia. The first thing, and and I want to encourage everyone, so if you're a student midwife, you've been taught, and if you're a midwife anywhere probably and we're learning about shoulder dystocia, you're taught the mnemonics, the helper mnemonic. There's all these different mnemonics that midwives are given so they can remember the steps to resolving a shoulder dystocia. I'm going to suggest that these mnemonics are incredibly unhelpful when you're actually in the moment of having a shoulder dystocia because they interrupt your clinical reasoning. They interrupt you being able to look and see what is exactly happening for this particular baby, what position is the baby in, where are the shoulders, what do I need to do to release
1: it, right? They create robotic care.
0: They create robotic care and women aren't robots and babies are not always stuck the same way in a shoulder dystocia.
1: So we can forget about their actual skills and capacity and they go straight to that and they go, it's very regimented. So these mnemonics are m- 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 like 30 seconds of this, 30 seconds of that, you know, and it, I understand why they teach them. I teach them. I teach them as part of the, you know, emergency course. But I, when I teach, I often break it down exactly what you're going to teach today. Just yes. actually look at what you've got in front of you. Like pause, never, ever underestimate the value of a pause in clinical care, even in a complication that feels scary. That. Five seconds of thinking about the situation may save you minutes later, which can be the difference between a healthy, beautiful outcome and a baby that is not healthy anymore and is admitted to NICU. But it's that actually look at what's in front of you, use your brain. Mm-hmm. And this is
0: really hard because midwives yeah. in a set in a clinical setting like a hospital are not necessarily, and I'm being very generalize here, not necessarily encouraged to use their brain, they're encouraged to follow the steps. so We're not very good at feeling confident that we can use our brain to resolve a problem that's in front of us. But what you're presented with is a problem that you need to solve. And so I guess if I can walk you through what I would personally do and use that as a bit of a framework for, you know, how
1: Do you want to just say here first, before people who are really passionate about these mnemonics get, feel, have some big feelings about it, is that there's no evidence for them?
0: Correct. So they've never actually, that's right. They've never actually done a randomized control trial to have a look at which of the maneuvers that we're taught work. Better than others, how successful they are each time there's a shoulder dystocia, like if, how they've never been compared. So, just some bright spot had an idea and put them together and went, Yeah, that looks like a good, good system. That looks like a good mnemonic. Let's start there. We've actually never actually clinically trialed these interventions. So, that's the first thing. It's by diverging from these, it's not like you're rebelling against some kind of solid evidence that these are the right way to go. We actually are pretty in the dark about what the best strategy is with shoulder dystocia and how that relates to the outcome and condition of the baby afterwards. So it's very culture-based approach to shoulder dystocia. That's just the way we do it but we're not in into- Yeah
1: and I understand why I just I do want to say I understand yeah. it as so, and someone who teaches these mnemonics I understand why we do it it's to it's to give people especially those less skilled like I teach people in rural and remote areas it's to give them a foundation because they're not as skilled as you and I are to do it but uh, let's go through your approach because it is. It's, it's an individualised thing and we should be doing this in every single birth we attend, right. regardless of whether there's a complication or not, right? right. It's that it's that unique approach to care.
0: Yeah. And I'm not saying to abandon the manoeuvres that we're taught. I'm just saying don't get hung up on going, oh, my gosh, what's the first one? Oh, my gosh, what's the second one? What's the third one? How should I be and progressing? do it for
1: 30 seconds and then this one comes up next.
0: Yeah, so if I um, – so personally – I've gone, okay, we're having a shoulder dystocia. The first thing I would do is change the woman's position to wherever she is. So most often clients of mine are in the pool. So the it, the first thing is is hey, it's time to get out of the pool. And often just that movement of flinging their leg over the side of the pool and the other one and getting in some kind of a deep squat or what we call prayer position where one knees up and the other legs back and you're actually changing the the position and angles in the pelvis, that could be enough
1: to rotate and change the baby's shoulders. So the inlet right, of the pelvis is the highest point where your hip bones are, where the pel- where the baby enters the pelvis. The way that opens up is when you take your knees out. So what Mel has said there in a deep squat, a deep squat will open the pelvis and help the baby engage into it better. This is why a position like McRoberts works. You're taking the knees out, right, so knees out makes pelvic inlet bigger. The reason the one foot up and one foot down kneeling position, and I love that for birth, works, is because what you're changing there now is the mid-pelvis. So any kind of manoeuvre that brings the femur back towards the bum, right, so it's not opening the legs, it's shifting the femur back, so rocking the hips, right, like think about one hip forward, one hip back, that opens the mid-pelvis. Kiko, which is knees in, calves out, opens the pelvic outlet and that is why when a, you're trying to get a baby out and the legs are up in stirrups it's no good for that because you've closed the space so the deep squat this is where you're like okay where is this baby you're like well now what do we do and sometimes the woman will just drop if she gets out of the bath and drops straight down the pelt into a deep squat she knows where that baby is the body is responding to that
0: Right, and so then if you've gotten, so if I've gotten the woman out of the pool when she's done all this movement in her pelvis and we've already addressed the idea of if the shoulders are stuck in the inlet, like B said, we've addressed that. Is it stuck in the mid-pelvis? Is it stuck at the spines of the pelvis and the outlet? So the baby could have a shoulder dystocia at any one of those points. So we're doing pelvic movements to alter the position of the baby at that stage. If that doesn't work, and and um, so people might be familiar with the what, called, what we call what be called the hands and knees position. If you look at it in other places, and you see words like the Gaskin maneuver, so this is when um, so Anna Gaskin, who was who learnt from some Guatemalan midwives, and saw that they were resolving shoulder dystocias with women on their hands and knees, and they were flipping them over to resolve shoulder dystocia. That's what B's talking about. I um
1: I totally did not connect that it was Ina Mae Gaskin. That's why I was, I was rolling my eyes because I just wrongly assumed I made a mistake that it was named after a man, which most things are. So I was like, oh Gaskin so remember. Famed, it's famed
0: for being named. We totally call it that now. It's famed to be named after a midwife, except she openly says that she learnt it off some traditional island yeah. midwives. So it's called yeah, the yeah. Gaskin manoeuvre because she brought it into kind of modern birth care, and it is on a lot of medical uh, strate- like strategies to resolve shoulder dystocia is the Gaskin manoeuvre. Unfortunately, they put it at the end and they try it last instead of mm-hmm. first. And it's That's so it. low intervention because all you're yeah. doing is turning the woman over. So if the woman- It's actually not even
1: called the Gascon River in like the mnemonics. They just say, they do say roll the woman, but it's right at the end.
0: Yeah, it's right at the end. So let's try it first. What's the harm in trying, you know, putting all of these maneuvers out of order is okay. So if you're thinking of the mnemonic and you can only think of two maneuvers, that's okay because they might be the ones that this woman needs. But what we're doing with shoulder dystocia is we're individually assessing where the baby's shoulders are stuck. And I honestly think that if you've only if you've only had to do external maneuvers, um, quite possible it was not necessarily a shoulder dystocia. So the first thing that the, the mnemonics tell you to do is uh, well, you know, call, call for, for help. help. Well, call for help. But normally clinicians will put what we call downward traction on the baby's head. And if the woman's lying on her back, that will mean that you are gonna push the baby. From this, imagine the shoulders at the pubic bone, you're going to push the baby's head down to the woman's bottom to try and, but that will only assist if it's the anterior shoulder that's that's lodged, right? And then the traction should not be much. So I want to really strongly say here, we don't pull babies out. You're not trying to extract them from their mother's. You're trying to rotate them through the pelvis in a corkscrew fashion. And anything that involves I think downward traction could actually impact a baby further.
1: Well, you're pushing it further down onto the bone that it's impacted on and giving it less space. It also increases injury in terms of if you're thinking about Herb's palsy and um, because you're straining through that neck. I've been in emergency situations and you want to do it don't pull don't pull don't pull right it's 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 twisting you're really twisting more than you're not pulling down and it's so hard not to do it and as I I did it once as a as a baby midwife because you just like get it out like you just want to get it out and so you go with the motion that you normally see the baby coming out in which is down but this isn't what it needs it needs to be twisted needs to be so if you imagine
0: you want to send that sounds really awful that word it needs well you want to rotated you want to send the baby around not try and pull it out so i am not down around not down i actually you know i've seen clinicians i've seen experienced doctors hook their hands around the baby's jaw and Mm. try and use the head as Mm. some kind of handle to pull Mm. the rest of the baby out
1: no no everything where you're trying to get a baby out you never actually want to pull you want to you want to rotate and yeah same with breach, same with shoulder associates same with anything the 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 body pushes the baby out nothing ever gets pulled out ever you don't ever want to pull it's so hard though I just want to acknowledge that it's really hard because your brain or wants to yank.
0: Yeah. But if you imagine if you're using a screwdriver to put a screw into some wood, if you just turn the screwdriver, the screw will naturally go down into the wood. You don't necessarily have to put an incredible amount of force behind it. Just the screwing is what will get the screw into that position, same as the baby. So um can i encourage you if with the very most gentle of contraction of traction on the baby's head if the shoulders come you don't have a shoulder dystocia because shoulder dystocia is a is stuck shoulders that and if you pull then they just get more stuck yeah so we've been very encouraged to focus on the anterior part of dislodging the baby, that we have forgot that there's this massive amount of posterior space in a woman's pelvis that we're not using, that the baby's not using to get through. So if you've used, if you've flipped the woman over and now the baby's looking at you because it's in an anterior position, I personally favor internal maneuvers for shoulder dystocia over the external ones. And I'll tell you why everyone's going, what? That's the second line of management. And it's a lot, it can be more invasive to the woman, but a lot less invasive for the baby. And the issue with shoulder dystocia is that we panic because we think it's an obstetric emergency and the lights are buzzing and there's noise and there's people and we all want to get the baby out fast. So there's all this panic and this pressure and stretching of the baby's head and neck can create the damage and injuries that we can see in shoulder dystocia babies. So, then my approach is let's find. So, I've turned the woman over, or we've already done some movement. Let's find the posterior shoulder. So, that's the one that would be near the woman's coccyx, her tailbone. And that's easy to find with a woman who's on hands and knees. And you can just find the back of the, follow the back of the baby's head, and trace that up into the woman's vagina with two fingers. I've got two fingers that I'm B can see all the actions that I'm doing, and I've got the best seat in the house. Right. So follow the back of the baby's head up, and oh, and feel for the baby's posterior shoulder. Once you find it, you can you can a little bit hook under the baby's arm. And use that to rotate the baby. So you're trying to kind of fold the baby's two shoulders in towards its nipples. So you want to sort of squash the baby into itself to reduce the diameter of the shoulders. You don't want to be pushing the shoulders back so the shoulder blades come together. You want to be kind of pushing the shoulders together so that like the baby gets cleavage,
1: right? And this is really important to to, to pause. Look at the situation you've got. Look where that baby's eyes are facing. You know what that position is in because you can see its head, right? So you know where that baby's going to be. So you look at the situation in front of you, see where that baby is. Take a second to think, right, that's where its head is. So that's where its shoulder must be.
0: Well, and if you track it up from the back of the baby's head, you know, Ooh. you're going to end up at the baby's back, the back of the posterior shoulder. You're not going to actually accidentally enter in from the front of the baby's chest towards its nipples. Yeah. And so you know if you track it from the back of the baby's head, you're gonna, you're gonna meet eventually the posterior shoulder and hook under it and rotate it around towards its nipples so that you're gonna corkscrew it through. So you're just trying to create a turn. Because there's room in the rest of the woman's pelvis. There's just not room where the shoulders are stuck. So you want to move where the shoulders are in the pelvis. That's probably enough to release a baby if there's a shoulder dystocia.
1: I think the posterior arm is, I think, in my experience, removing the posterior arm works a lot better than that because that rotating one can get really tricky and slippery I I've never seen it I've actually never seen it done well I've always seen the posterior arm and and I think
0: the difficulty with yes if you can find the posterior arm and sweep it forward in front of the baby's chest and bring it out yeah I then, think that's hands down the number one well and it, it usually works the issue is is if you can't quite get high enough to find the arm and sweep it down that's when that rotation can help yeah. bring the baby lower in your pelvis and yeah, then yeah. once the shoulders start to move down and you can actually reach and find the posterior arm you can sweep it down and bring it out and then the trick is not to try and keep um pushing the baby anteriorly once the posterior arm's out you want to then lift the baby or move the baby into the posterior space to release the anterior shoulder. Yeah.
1: Well, when it you release down once, oh, you want it to come down first and then you bring it up.
0: So you're you when you release, space. Uh, when you're releasing the posterior shoulder, you're kind of putting downward anterior traction, yes. and then once the posterior shoulder is released, then you're applying uh, posterior traction and yeah. releasing the anterior shoulder. I feel like so if um
1: if you guys like to a video on this.
0: Yeah, so I actually am and in the Assembly of Rebellious Bidwives, which is about to launch soon, um I'm going to do all of these actions for you in the shoulder dystocia section and talk you through a recent case I had where I had to engage with all these maneuvers. And so you'll actually see what I'm talking about because it's very hard to work out what I'm saying, but I guess what I'm suggesting is that Uh, Don't get hung up on the mnemonics and think I've got to do step one, two, three, and four. Feel confident to feel around and inside the woman's pelvis to get a diagnosis as to what position the baby's in. And then that will dictate what you need to do to get the baby out, because that will tell you which way you need to rotate the baby which shoulder's stuck, is it the anterior or posterior shoulder? So you might go in and try all these posterior manoeuvres, but actually discover that the anterior shoulder's got way more manoeuvrability, that you've got way more access to the anterior shoulder. And it might be all right to flip the woman back over again so that you can manoeuvre the anterior shoulder instead of the posterior shoulder. So, you know, yeah, that would work if the anterior shoulder's impacted. But if the posterior shoulder is impacted, you need a whole different strategy. So that's okay to diagnose what kind of shoulder dystocia we're dealing with. And don't be frightened to put two fingers in the woman's vagina, obviously by explaining it. Um, And it's a bit more of an emergency situation. So the way I word it is, I feel like your baby needs help getting out because I think it's stuck. To do that, I'd like to put two fingers in your vagina to find out what position it's in. Is that okay?
1: I can almost guarantee you the woman would say yes, because they know. They know something is not right, and they know the baby's not coming. And you know, I know you've said um, have confidence. I think it's really tricky to have confidence when you haven't seen things done like that, and when you haven't done it yourself. So, what I want to offer here is have the courage to be curious. Have the courage to be curious and and try it out and take that pause and and you know you might say to yourself I can do this I can do this Think what am I doing right I'm going to find this I'm going to figure this out like see it as a problem that you need to solve as Mel said and find those pieces.
0: If you're a um, new grad or a, a a younger midwife, you haven't been a midwife for very long. What the what can often happen is is that either the senior midwives or the obstetric team identifies what's going on and then wants to take over. I think if you want to give this a go and you're not the most experienced midwife in the room, it's okay to say to somebody who's there to support you, I want to try this. Can you please, can you just support me? I want to give this a go. Because you'll be seeing your midwives one day and if you haven't yet had the opportunity to build your confidence around shoulder dystocia because you're always... Putting it on to the more senior staff there, then you'll never learn. But if you've got senior staff supervising you and talking you through it and saying, "Right, we're going to find this, and what can you feel," then that's a valuable thing for you. And they'll step in if things aren't quite working. They'll step in, resolve the shoulder dystocia, give you a hand. But just say, "Can I please try this? I'd really like to get good at this." And you know, that's an opportunity to um, to get better and build confidence.
1: All right. That's all we've got to say about Shoulder Station I feel like today. That was a cracker of an episode. I feel like that was I hope you in all enjoyed listening to it as much as I loved talking through it.
0: And thank be- you for listening. There's so many papers on this and I want to explore it more in the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives, which is going to open soon and that's a continuing professional development opportunity. But if you want all the papers we spoke about, they're also in the resource folder. If you're on the mailing list, you can get those. And we will see you next week in the next episode of The Great Birth Rebellion.
1: Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> all right.